Do you know how privileged we are every Sunday to be led in worship by that band? Amen? Amen. Well, good morning. Um, I'm Walt McCord, and I'm currently um, the newest member of pastoral staff here at Wayside Chapel. I'm not the youngest member of staff here at Wayside Chapel, but I've actually been here two other times preaching from, from here, um, once as, a, as just a church member, once as an elder, and now I get the first Sunday to, to preach um, on pastoral staff, and I'm thrilled to do it. Uh, one thing you will notice from time to time, I will be taking a drink of water. Has anyone besides me got that upper respiratory sinus infection, allergy, that goes into a cough that lasts, oh, three or four months? <laughs> anyone beside me? Well, this morning, I am, I'm fighting the good fight. I'm here. I'm feeling, I'm feeling great. It's just, let's see if the voice, the voice lasts throughout the whole message. What's the best day? that you've ever experienced in your life? What's the best day? Maybe more than one. I I heard someone say, what did you say? Yeah, wedding day. Good answer. Good answer. Yeah, there there will be a reward for that answer. You know, for some of us, when I was 11 years old, I took Hunter's safety. And as part of this class, I... I worked with a a state game warden, and the whole class did, and then we got our hunter's safety card. It's one of the rites of passages of my childhood. Then a few years later, I got my driver's permit, and then eventually my driver's license. Do you remember that day? What a great day that was in my life. What a a horrific day that was in the other drivers in Bradford County. But what a great day that was in my life. Or maybe it's when you graduate from school. Or maybe when you get that first good job. You know, the one that allows you to move out from mom and dad. Or maybe it is your wedding day. The day that your first child is born. The day that your first grandchild is born. Those are good days. What has been the worst day of your life? What has been the worst day of your life? It may be involved death, death um, of a parent or a sibling or a child, God forbid. It might have been losing your job or having your marriage crumble or getting a diagnosis of cancer. You see, we have good days and we have bad days, but very seldom are both of them at the same time. But we will be considering today a day that is both very, very good and a day that is very, very bad. If you haven't already, would you turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 22? Luke chapter 22, where we see a great day for us, the people who have been redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ But the worst day ever for the eternal Son of God, who during this day will settle the deal with God and then will make an atoning sacrifice that places on him all the sins of the world. As Peter said in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust in order that he might bring us 
close to God. Isn't that a good message? That the best of days for us when we are being brought close to God was the most horrific day in the life of Jesus. And that's what we're going to we're going to be considering today. You know, the Jewish concept of a day actually is pretty interesting. Their day begins at sunset. Actually, the rabbis taught that when three stars appear in the sky, that's the start of a new day. And you might say, that's kind of odd, starting a new day at sunset. And yet they say, well, don't you know your Bibles? The reason is because in Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 to 5, It talks about there was darkness and then God spoke into the darkness and brought light. And so the idea even is summarized in verse 5 of Genesis 1. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, then there was morning, day one. There was evening, then morning. And so that idea of the evening and what is happening in the evening. Now we're going to continue on this message Actually, three weeks ago, we started this day that began with sunset. And Pastor Roger preached on Passover and a Passover Seder and all that Jesus did. After having the the Passover on the western hill, they crossed down across the the area of just below the temple. As a matter of fact, as they're crossing down through there, the disciples said, look at this glorious temple. Isn't this great? And Jesus responds and says, there's times of judgment coming. There's going to be a day when not one of these stones will remain upon the other. And he gets them ready. He corrects them. He teaches them. He encourages them. He warns them. And that should warn us also. This very long day that will end tomorrow afternoon, between noon and 3 p.m., when Jesus finally takes the sacrifice and pays with his own blood for our sin. This very long day is in the middle of a very horrific night. As you would read with me, Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. And when he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him, and when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter in temptation. And he withdrew from there about a stone's throw, and he knelt down, and he began praying, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him and and strengthened him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And he rose from prayer, He came to the disciples. He found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you might not enter into temptation. According to Luke, the setting is the Mount of Olives. Mark and Matthew both talk about it. It's not just anywhere on the Mount of Olives, but it's in a place called Gethsemane. But this is a place rich with meaning for a good Jew. And they would... They would have many things to say about that. Actually, there's three places in this garden. As you look over on the Mount of Olives, there are the olive trees. And at the base of the mountain, there was a place called Gethsemane, the place for the pressing of olives. That's literally what it means in the Hebrew. 
There was a cave where there was a press, a beam press. Not only that, there would have also been a millstone. And the olive and the pits were crushed, and then they were put into like a burlap bag, and they were put onto that beam press, and they were crushed and then pressed out. And that shouldn't surprise us that that is exactly what is going to happen to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this night, in this place, full of such significance. Well, besides there being an olive press, there was a garden a little farther. And then Jesus, even though Luke kind of condenses this and says it's all together, Matthew and Mark explain, actually, there were three places. There's the Gethsemane, the press of the olives. There's the garden. And then a stone's throw further, Jesus goes, and he starts to pray. If you would join me in Israel sometime, we'll take that walk and we'll have this talk. But for today, we kind of have to do this uh, through photos. As we continue on, this whole idea of what is there is layered with meaning. A place that is layered with meaning. Now you might say, wait a minute, Walt, what's, what does is, what is layered with meaning mean? And I would suggest to you, it's sort of like the Alamo. Have any of you ever been to the Alamo? Okay, less than half of you. Where have the other of you been? <laughs> But if you would go to the Alamo, you say, let's go to the Alamo, and immediately say, oh, yes, an 18th century Spanish mission. Literally, the name was the, um, the Mission San Antonio de Vallejo. It was founded in the 18th century by Roman Catholic missionaries. That's what we mean when we say going to the Alamo, right? We're just going to see an old mission. Where is there something more significant, something else buried there when we say we go to the Alamo. And you might say, oh yeah, there is. On February 23rd through March 6th in 1836, there was a battle there between the forces of Texas independence and Santa Ana, eventually leading leading to the, the death of all those that fought in that battle. And you might say, well, that's what it is. But when we say, remember the Alamo, or you think of the Alamo, there's another layer of meaning. It's not just a fort that was built in the 18th century. It's not, just, it's just not just a battle, but it's a spirit of the place, the spirit of independence and the spirit, a fighting spirit of Texans. Um, I'm not native to Texas, but for 10 years we lived in the Dallas area and our guys had to take Texas history. And in studying with the guys, you know what I had to learn? Texas history right, with them. And you know what I realized? I mean, this is going to be a shocker. Ready? I think Texans are, are pretty proud of their history. Do you? <laughs> you know? And, and so even in studying that, that whole idea of there's more behind the scenes, well, that is exactly what's going to happen here on the Mount of Olives. This place, the Mount of Olives, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 11, is a place of judgment. And in Ezekiel 11, the prophet Ezekiel says, and let me tell you something, because of the disobedience of the nation, the Shekinah glory of God that hovered over the mercy seat is going to leave. And first it's going to go to the edge of the temple, out the Holy of Holies, to the edge of the temple, and then by way of the golden or eastern gate, and it's going to leave. And where does it leave from? The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, and he, the glory of the Lord, stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. 
God's glorious Shekinah leaves the Temple Mount and it goes by way of the Mount of Olives. And you're like, wow, that's kind of strange. I didn't see that happening. But it's not just there. Later in Ezekiel chapter 43, he says, oh, by the way, there's coming a day when God's going to set all things right. And when he sets all things right, he will come in power. And he will come in power to a place. And then he led me up. This is Ezekiel 43, 1 and 2. He led me up to the gate, the gate facing the east towards the Mount of Olives. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. I'm sorry to have to stop from time to time to take a drink, but I am on a, enough drugs to kill a small horse. <laughs> and, um, and, it, and it's drying out my throat, so I apologize for that. As you continue on down, not only is it the place where the glory has departed, the place where the glory is coming back, there's one other significant passage that tells us the Old Testament history of the Mount of Olives. And it's Zechariah chapter 14. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem to the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from the east to the west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. If we would continue on and we would read other passages, that in that day when God sets all things right and there's the restoration of all things and the times of refreshing come from the hand of the Lord, there will be streams of living water that come out from this area and go down to the Dead Sea and turn the Dead Sea into a live sea, into fresh water. It will be a spectacular day. It will be a great day. But for some, it will also be a sad day. If you would go with me to the Mount of Olives today, you would see this, tombs. Not just any tombs, some of the most expensive burial plots in the world. People pay six figures, even seven figures, for one little plot there. And why do they do it? Because they want to be the first to see the Messiah when he comes. Because they believe what Zechariah chapter 14 says. But many of those Jewish people don't read what Zechariah just said two chapters earlier. When he says the person that will stand in victory on the Mount of Olives is a very specific person. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. So that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. There's coming a day when Jesus will return. He will set his feet on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will split. And for believers, that's a great day of rejoicing. Amen? It it is going to be a great day. But for those who had not trusted, for those who were not faithful, It will be a day of great mourning. Do you know, on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty. But many of those knees will be bowing in subjugation, in in abject fear, in judgment, in terror. But 
the followers of Christ, we will bow in worship, in adoration, in thankfulness for all that God is doing. Not only is this a significant place in the Old Testament, it's also significant in the New. And we'll just summarize here. There's a triumphal entry that was a Sunday previous. We call it Palm Sunday. Do you remember that? And on Palm Sunday, Jesus came around from Bethany and he's crossing down and he's going down the Mount of Olives. And as he's doing that, the people are laying their coats and they're laying palm branches on the ground. And as they do that, they're saying, they're saying what phrase? Hashna ben David, save now, son of David, save now. And remember the religious leaders, what do they tell the Jewish people to do? Stop. Don't be calling this guy the son of David. And Jesus hearing them says, if you stop, if you stop proclaiming who I am and what I intend to do, the rocks themselves will cry out. Creation will cry out and say, this is God's Messiah, the son of David. As you come through there, the whole idea of, of it is introduced with this Palm Sunday, introducing him to the last week. In Luke chapter 19, there's praises for miracles, but there's also a rebuke from some of the Pharisees. Jesus is having that praise and, and the adoration of the crowd, but behind the scenes, you see a dark storm coming. And then in Luke chapter 19, Jesus tears up over Jerusalem. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. He says, oh, as he cries over Jerusalem, he says, oh, how I long to gather you together like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have me. And he says, there will come a time of destruction. But one more aspect. In Acts chapter 1, the Mount of Olives is also significant. You remember that wonderful passage where Jesus gives the great commission, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, as he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way you have watched him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olives. Jesus departed from the Mount of Olives and he's coming back. And I love when I get there to just, just share that exciting moment. Maybe today, maybe today. Now, I believe theologically, first there'll be the tribulation, but the imminence of his return is right there. And this is a wonderful place. Now, as we look into our text that we already read, there's an interesting structure that happens in the flow. And we're going to be spending most of our time here because the text focuses most of our attention here. These seven verses, actually, one of my professors at, at, cemetery, at, at seminary... <laughs> Sometimes it felt like a cemetery. But at, um, at some, Dan Wallace said there's something called a chiastic or a chiastic structure. And it's a literary device, device for focusing our attention in on a, a few special items. In this device, you ask the question, what is first in this passage? So what's first? Jesus commands us to pray. Then 
He withdraws to pray. He kneels to pray, and he prays to his Father. What's last? Jesus commands to us to pray, the importance of prayer. What's in the middle? Sort of like the middle of an Oreo cookie, that creamy frosting. What's in the middle? Jesus is strengthened by an angel. And it's interesting that even in the midst of that, that whole idea of being strengthened by an angel is significant. By the way, even in the topic of prayer, when we get to this place, um, what's prayer like for you? What's prayer like for you? And you might say, well, not that much, Walt. You see, I came from a non-praying family. And so I really don't pray much. By the way, that's my heritage. I came from a non-praying family. Oh, we learned one prayer that we had to recite as five kids whenever a guest would come and we wanted to try to impress them that we were good folk. We had to say one prayer and it was taught to us a child's grace. Do you know what it is? Taught to us for a special point, God is great, God is good. Lord, we thank you for our food. By your hand, we all are fed. Give us, God, our daily bread. Amen. Have any of you ever heard that prayer before? That's the only prayer I ever remember us reciting or saying together as a family. To my knowledge, I never saw my mom or my dad, never heard them pray out loud in in my whole life. And yet, at the same time, prayer isn't just something that's personal, which it, it is. Prayer is something that's very important some people think of prayer like a, it's like the, the flare gun that they shoot up into the sky. You know, the, you're, you're on the ocean and you're in the boat and something's going by, the boat's going by and you shoot that flare gun and, and you get rescued. They're looking for rescue. And some folks say, you know, prayer should be like that. You just wait until that very special moment. Some people act like prayer is like anti-aircraft flak. You just fill the sky with and hope to hit something with impact. Just throw up the prayers and hope one of them hits. For the Pharisees, Jesus said prayer was very different. Prayer for them wasn't about rescue or impact. It was about impressing others. They're impressing others with their long, flowing prayers and their many words. And Jesus says this in Matthew 23, 28. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly, inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They were hoping for respect and positions of authority. And so they prayed publicly. But prayer for us is to be different. Prayer for us is to strengthen us so that we don't enter into temptation. Prayer is personal communication with the God of the universe and access through his son, Jesus Christ, whoever lives to make intercession for us, the book of Hebrews teaches. That's what prayer is for us. You know, it's interesting. He says, do not pray that you do not enter into temptation. Almost like he's quoting or referring back to Proverbs chapter 5, where he says, there's a house of wickedness. Don't go in there. Don't enter in there. Instead, you better be praying. You better be praying. And it's almost like all around us, there's places of wickedness. And Jesus says the, 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 the cure for the going in there, the, the cure for the temptation that comes is for us to pray. 
Or as James says it this way, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. You know, what this passage and others in the New Testament teach us is this. God will allow us to go through trials, times of testing, right? Have any of you been through something like that? I have. God allows us to go through trials, times of testing, but his desire is that we pass the test. And that's the difference between God and the wicked one. The wicked one wants us to tempt us into sin and that we will fail. And by the way, if you haven't heard that, there's two kinds of failure that this focus is going to be in. But let's continue. For the unbeliever, times of temptation can be overwhelming. And so if you're here and you maybe are interested in the things of Christ, but you're not yet a follower of Christ, what is going to help you in your times of temptation? You know, for some, it's drugs, antidepressants. It's alcohol. It's sexual enticement. Something to make me feel good in the worst day of my life. But that's not what the believer has access to. The believer has access to prayer from God. So, in the midst of this, this dependent on him, there's a couple of major points. One, Jesus commands his followers to pray two times in a present and imperative form. This is something that's to be continual with us. We should always, every day, be praying what? Lord, don't let us enter into temptation, but instead deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And God's people say, amen, amen. Jesus was dependent on God to see him through the agony. The focus is not on my will, Father, but on your will. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An application is we need to apply the same mindset as we walk through life. Father, not my will, but your will be done. And we need to say that repeatedly. When it comes to our finances, and we say, what should I do? What, what do I do? What choices do I make? We need to say, Father, when it comes to our finances, thy will be done. When it comes to our sexuality, all the different various choices that seem to become more confusing by the day, right? The proper respect before the Lord God Almighty is, Father, when it comes to my sexuality, not my will, but yours be done. Make of us holy people in every area of our life that continue to say, not my will, but yours be done. In the center, Jesus is strengthened by an angel, which is at the center of this passage. You know, when we talk about angels, I think there's two extremes that people go to. The one extreme is that there's an over-fascination and they focus in and become even just drawn in and they, they just pour themselves into spiritual world things. That's one extreme that we shouldn't go. But the other extreme is probably more common for some of us. 
And that's like, well, I guess the Bible has some messages about angels, and maybe they're out there somewhere. But no, I'm, I really don't know anything about angels, and um, I really don't care. This ignoring of the reality of spiritual warfare. Here, Luke says, Jesus is strengthened by an angel. You know, it's interesting as we, we look at this, the, the book of Hebrews says, angels, in chapter 1, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Angels have a job to do, and part of their job is to help believers in our times of need. And I don't understand how all of that, that works, but I know that scriptures teach it. I know that the scriptures teach it. And so I think it's pretty important. The applications, angels minister to Jesus and they minister to his faithful followers. Even when we can't see their assistance, we should be grateful and full of praise for this provision. You know, it's interesting. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, See, do you not despise one of these little ones? For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. There's work that angels are doing that we don't even have any idea of, but we should be thankful for that, the ministry that they provide and the assistance. We should praise God for that. Well, continuing on, we've already said at this point, as we work our way through the passage, as Jesus was speaking, this is now Luke verses 47 through 53. As Jesus was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, Luke doesn't say, but the other Gospels record it's Peter, one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, stop. No more of this. And he touched the ear of him and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, why have you come out with swords and clubs that, like you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, did you, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Here in this darkest of nights for Jesus, he's going to experience two things. He's going to experience the betrayal of Judas and then arrest. And even as we look at that, the betrayal of Jesus by, by Peter, by Judas, we should remind ourselves that Peter also failed Jesus. And if you hadn't heard the message from last week, as Peter failed, he failed forward into faith, into faithfulness. But as Judas here in the garden, as he fails and as he betrays his Lord and Savior, or his Lord, as Judas experiences that, he fails backward into unfaithfulness and in back to heart set on monetary gain. For as John in chapter 12, verse 6 says that Judas was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put inside of it. Judas, the thief, wanting money more than the 
a relationship with the Lord. Um, this is a picture of a, a kiss between a Samaritan, uh, one of the elders of Samaria. In 2000, I had the joy of going for seven weeks to Israel and training to be a religious tour guide. And while I was there, we went to Samaritan to their Passover service, and there we watched this group of only about 600 people that, that still live in central Israel. On Mount Gerizim, they had Passover. But one of the actions in the midst of the Passover was that, that the people that were bringing their lamb, the heads of the family, had to go to the elders. And as they went to the elders, the elders gis, gis, greeted them with a kiss. The elders would come in each one of them and thanking them for being there, sharing that they were accepted, that their sacrifice was being made in good faith. That's one way a kiss should be, that sharing the acceptance, the welcoming. That's not the only way, though. The only, in, in addition to that, there's a, a, a wonderful story that we studied earlier in Luke chapter 7. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining to the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet, anointing them with perfume, a kiss of appreciation and a kiss of approval. But here we have a kiss of deceit. And again, that reminder that you can fail forward, but also if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, without doing that and having God's grace poured in your life, you will fail backward into fleshliness. And God wants us to fail forward. Well, a point of this, two major themes. First, we see the hypocrisy of Jesus' betrayal by Judas, one of his inner circles. And here's where we should have a point of application that might be meaningful to especially a few in here, including me. Including me. The application, if you've been betrayed by someone you trusted, you're in good company. The premeditated betrayal of Jesus reminds us that all men, the best of men, are men at best. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been betrayed? I've been betrayed two big times in my life by two older men that were religious men, that were spiritual men, that were trained men. And both of these two individuals harmed me deeply and hurt me badly. And by the way, even in thinking about this this week, preparing this message, I had to go back and remember those stories and I had to say again, Father, I sought their forgiveness because there's always a part of me that, that needs to do that. But Lord, as much as it is with me, I want to be at peace with all men. And I choked down that disappointment and that hurt and that heartache and I give it to the Lord. And in the midst of this, this darkest of nights, Jesus is betrayed by a kiss. Not what a kiss is for. But secondly, there's the hypocrisy of his arrest at night. 
this idea that Jesus is going to be arrested at night. And he said, by the way, I was with you every day in the temple, and you didn't say anything about it? The hypocrisy of his arrest at night with this overwhelming show of force. It says it's a crowd. It's a crowd with religious leaders in it. The chief priests and the scribes, they were there. But that shouldn't surprise us for just a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about Luke in chapter 22, the first verses. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. So he consulted and he began seeking a good opportunity to portray him to them apart from the crowd. This is the beginning of the farce. There's a betrayal with money paid for an untrustworthy witness, Judas. There's not going to be a rest at the wrong place at the wrong time. They could have had him any day, but they want to do it this way. We'll talk in the future about the trials of Jesus, the mockery that was made of justice. They're in the wrong place at the wrong time by the wrong people. And yet that's what's going to continue to roll downhill, just like a snowball gathering up weight. And then finally, the punishment of Jesus, him being scourged, him having a crowd of thorns put on him and beaten with rods, him being crucified, the farce of all that is happening, the depth of what will go on and will be our satisfaction and our salvation later on Friday afternoon between noon and 3 p.m. But the deal was settled here in the garden. Jesus settled it this night. Not my will, but thy's be done. And by the way, one of the most shocking aspects of this whole story is in the midst of his darkest night, in the midst of his greatest pain, in the midst of betrayal and denial and all of these things, you know what Jesus does? One of his disciples cuts off the ear of a guy. And this is a guy that's coming with clubs to, to possibly beat Jesus. And you know what Jesus does? In his darkest of nights, he heals. He heals that ear. And he shows his grace and his compassion right to the very end. On our worst day, what do we need? On your worst of days, what do you need? And from this passage, one of the things we need is the word of God and the power of the spirit of God and the encouragement of God. But we also need the people of God around us to encourage us and give us perspective on our worst of days and to remind us there's a better day a-coming. Would you pray with me? As our worship team comes, Lord, we come before you and on the worst of days we confess that we need you. And Lord, because you came and because you in the garden sealed the deal and you said, not my will, but thine be done. Lord, we are so thankful for that and the access that that gives us to your heavenly Father. Lord, you've been so kind to us, those of us who have trusted in you. And for any that are here that have not yet, Lord, would you kindly draw them to yourself? And would they take a point in time and say, Jesus, I need you. Come into my life and forgive my sins and be my Savior 
and my Lord. Turn in faith. Prepare for the coming King. The Lord Jesus Christ will set his feet on the Mount of Olives and he will be victorious and he will reign forever and ever. Amen.